welcome to another episode of Black Boy Joy. You are joined here with me, Ainsley. And, and also with me, Kieran. Yes, and it's another very, very special episode because we have our first ever female and straight guest with us. <laughs> welcome to Indeed. Black Boy Joy Liz Pemberton. <laughs> also known as the Black Nursing Manager. She's an early years antivirus trainer and consultant uh, based in Birmingham. So, yes, I, we've been a fan. I've seen you um, on Instagram. I've seen you doing, like, various bits of media all across, uh, across the UK. Oh. Very happy to have you here. Welcome to the oh. Welcome. Thank Liz. you so much, Angelie. Thank you, Kieran. I'm so excited to be here. I've literally been waiting, you know, I'm going to say all my life, you know? Oh, wow. <laughs> An opportunity to stay in the room, you know? I just think we should just say it as it is. Um, but, you know, I've said to both of you, I've been a long-term, a long-time fan of the work that you both do, the platform that you've created, the space that you've given to having such important conversations. Um, and, yeah, man, it is actually an honour, in, in, you know, in all honesty, to sit and just have a chat with both of you today. So, big up both of you, man. Well, welcome. This. It's good to have you. Good to, have, good to you. have you. Yeah, I feel like if I was white, I'd blush right now. <laughs> but, uh, nobody's white. Nobody's white, you know. So I'll imagine that blush. I'll imagine it somehow. A bit of a rose tint. So, yeah, um, in my introduction, I mentioned mm-hmm. that um, you've been very active on social media, doing mm-hmm. a lot of activism, doing a lot of educating, I will say. Mm-hmm. Um, on like education, on um, on sort of like anti-racism. Maybe we should go probably maybe back to the beginning. Like, how did you get into it? Like, where sure. did you come from? What's your background? Yeah, absolutely. So, for the past sixteen years, I've worked in education, primarily early years education. So, I took two and a bit years out to qualify and teach secondary. But our family business has always been children's day nurseries. So. My mom started the business in the 80s, bought her first nursery at the end of the 80s, second nursery, early 90s, and our third nursery, most recently about four years ago. And I joined the business in 2004. So I came in basically as um, a staff training coordinator, you know? I just thought morale was low, um, generally in the sector, and people didn't really have an enthusiasm around childcare and early years. And I always knew the demographic of the children at that nursery was predominantly black and brown. So when I say brown, I'm saying South Asian families, black, black African, black African Caribbean. So the demographic of the nursery had always been that. And the staff team had always really kind of generally reflected the children that we had. So I started kind of working around staff well-being, motivating staff, and then moved into kind of management as um, my interest grew, really, because I graduated from uni with um, a theatre and English degree, always been interested in people always been interested in community um but the family business was always there and I didn't know how I could tie the two together Mm -hmm. so kind of when I went into that I was like I really like working with the children like I'm really excited about them and because all of the kids were black basically I was like this feels close to home there's an affinity there and we really have a job in shaping their futures but it was really important to also shape the minds of the practitioners um who were working with the children and so I quickly kind of got into a management position after qualifying and training and studying, um, did my MVQ level three, um, did a master's degree in early childhood studies, which focused 
mainly on race, um, equality and expectations. And then kind of really started to craft my, my art, as it were, in just creating a setting that I would want to have any black or brown child in that really kind of paid um, attention to their racial and cultural identity because I just felt it's, it's important. It's a big part of your identity and we, you know, we shouldn't shy away from it. So um, as that happened, you know, kind of my mum moved away from the business in terms of she wasn't there all day, every day. And that really allowed me to grow in my role. You know, with a family business, it's, it's close, you know, everybody's yeah. got to get on. Um, and sometimes people don't get on and that, that's, that's the real tea. Um, but it's good because it really helps you to grow as a person as well. Being in a mother and daughter family situation is very, very testing, but it's also very, very advantageous because you're creating boundaries all the time and then recreating boundaries. When I think at the start of my career, I lived at home. Mm-hmm. with my parents I was working with one of my parents it was very intense mm-hmm. and as the role has developed and as the years have gone on you know I've moved out I've bought my own house I've then you know rented out a house moved in with my now husband got married so a lot of life things had happened as well mm-hmm. but also I was noticing that politically and socially things were really evolving and things were really changing mm-hmm. and that was directly impacting the families of the children that were coming to the nursery um, because of the demographic and because of the socioeconomic status um, of those children and families. And it meant that our work had to adapt um, in terms of being skilled properly yeah. to look after and to work with and to cultivate and to inspire that particular group of children. And a big part of that was really paying attention to, as I said, racial and cultural background. Um, I realise, guys, this is really long-winded, but, you know. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Like I'm just going on and on and on. But, um, you know, what then kind of uh, transpired is that there was a need for it. Parents were excited. Carers were excited. Guardians, you know, were excited. I was dealing with lots of different kinds of family setups. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the things that really happened for me, which kind of made me move into a space of wanting to get into training and consultancy, was lockdown. Lockdown happened. And I was like, right, I'm not doing the job that I'm always doing in terms of going into the physical space but the families still need that support Mm -hmm. and the children still need that kind of inspiration. Mm -hmm. And I just really got busy with the internet. You know, I became fast friends with zoom. I became fast friends with, you know, Instagram um, and social media facilities and just using it really as a space to amplify my voice. And of course the black lives matter movement, which really impacted the way in which I wanted to kind of incorporate social cultural change and political change in terms of how we saw the lives and the well-being of black children. So I started this little platform called the Black Nursery Manager on Instagram, which gave me an opportunity to speak to the masses, to widen, you know, the audience and just talk about some of the things I'd experienced in my 16 years of being a nursery manager Mm -hmm. in a setting that was predominantly black. Um, I just talked about all of those things that perhaps people didn't want to talk about, like racism, (laughs) (laughs) like what white people do when they come to the setting and they see that everybody's black, you know, like what happens when you are subject to a um, groups of people who are not happy about you being black in the area, because we're based in an area in Birmingham called Edgebaston. as fellow Brummies, I know that you two know that area. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, Edgebaston sits in a strange space um, where the nursery was. On one half, you know, it was kind of like closer to the Ladywood border. 
and the other half, you know, is closer to Edge Boston, as I, I say, Edge Boston. Yeah. So it's a totally different demographic, and you know, it means that the tensions between the races and cultures are, are heightened because yeah. you've got this very black nursery in the middle of that, and we come with everything. Mm-hmm. Energy, culture, liveliness, yeah. you know, expression, <laughs> music playing, loud. <laughs> no, and I'm not talking in, about stereotypes. I'm talking about this is the real, this is what's happening, yeah. you know, and it was exciting, it was energizing, but that was, all, that was always kind of sometimes met with um, a bit of resistance from the local residents. Mm-hmm. And we were just like, you know, you need to just get some, um, get some seasoning in your life and relax. <laughs> You know, things like having the police called on us because the parents are coming in, the music's too loud or they're not parking correctly. You know, so all of those little microaggressions started happening. And I started to think, wow, this is what happens when, you know, you're black in an area that that doesn't welcome um, difference, doesn't want it, but pretends to celebrate this notion of multiculturalism. Um, So you see how you can slowly become socially excluded um, in spaces. Although, as I said, you come in and you try to do what you're doing and did it. And that's when I started to say, you know, respectability politics. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, racism. Yeah. I'm not here for it. I'm not here to code switch. <laughs> and I don't think any of my, my children and family should have to come code switch either because yeah. I feel like our, our parents and our grandparents, they've already paid, you know, with their yeah, lives. True. Yeah? Yeah. Um, and they've helped to build this country and, we got a fair stake in this, so why can't we just be here and show up and take up space? Mm-hmm. And I've always encouraged the children and the families to do that. But as I said, during lockdown, it meant that I could just amplify my message. And the Black Nation Manager was born. Black Nation Manager Training and Consultancy Limited was born. Um, and so I'm just out here now, just delivering anti-racist training um, to local authorities, the nurseries, um, small organisations, organizations that might do partnership work with schools and nurseries and just getting them to think about their inclusive practice as well as putting on my own webinars um, for people who follow me to attend. So that's it. That's it. That's it. That's, that's, that's how we've got to here. There is like so many things that you said there that like, I want to ask questions on. I think oh. the first thing, really interesting thing that you said that, that you were based in Edge Baston and obviously like Kieran, Liz and I are all Birmingham born and raised. People who aren't from Birmingham, I think Edbaston itself is a really interesting area because um, the whole area of Edbaston, it's, um, it's sort of like divided by one big main road called the Hagley Road. If you're going towards the, the town centre, um, what we call like the more like economically deprived area, so it's on the left-hand side, which is um, the area that I was born in. And then up, up on the right-hand side was the really affluent, really leafy, really suburban part of it. And never the twain met. So, like, mm-hmm. if you wanted to get public transport, for instance, you could never get one from one side to the other. You'd always have to, like, change in the middle and things like that. So I think, like, Edge Baston is really a tale of two cities. So if you're going to have a, a nursery in that area, I can imagine or I can only imagine what it mm-hmm. would have been like. Mm-hmm. And kind of like those sort of things coming out to play like every day or dealing with parents or other issues there. So, yeah, it's, totally. it's, an, it's, it's a really, in, I think it's uh, maybe because I'm, I'm kind of from the area, but I think it's a really interesting place to live, a place to go off mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. those reasons. Totally, totally. 
So when I think of Birmingham, like Edgebaston and maybe Sutton are the two areas that really stand out to me. Where as you've got a massive divide, you've got a really affluent part and like a more sort of deprived part, however you want to call it. Um, but I used to go to Edgebaston for um, for music rehearsals and stuff, like you know the school bands when you're growing up in the music service. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's when I kind of first noticed it. I was like, this is all one area, but like you've got really rich people in one area and then like the complete opposite in the other. So um, I think that's really interesting, Liz, to have like a nursery setting there. Mm. Um, do your kids, are they, are they like local or they come from all over the place? Or Hell no, they're not local. Hell no. <laughs> people are traveling far and wide to get that good, good service. Um, the majority of the children and families are from like the northwest corridors of Birmingham and it was really a community kind of feel in that it was word of mouth so you would have generations of children whose cousins brothers sisters had been at the nursery previously because you've got to remember my mum had had the nursery for some like 25 years so a lot of people came through word of mouth and didn't always live in the locality no um but they were traveling and I think one of the interesting things was that everybody knew Edgebaston. Everybody knows City Road, Dudley Road, Ladywood, yeah. Broadway Plaza. And everybody kind of understands that if you just go across Ignil Port Road, oh, well, I'm Rotten Park Road, basically. Yeah. You know? And that's where the nursery um, is. And so the reservoir is another kind of divider. It's another place and space where you go on one side of the reservoir and it's just like, rah. Okay, there, <laughs> and there, yeah. And on the other side of the reservoir, you know, you've got the yummy mummies who are taking their little stroll, you know, with their three million trillion pound prams. Um, and, and it's really interesting because the, the, the children who came to the nursery, when they were kind of on their way into the nursery, that journey, you see the change in demographics. So it was really interesting because some of the stories that I'd heard from parents who'd say you know on the drive to the nursery the parents would say the kids would always be aware that oh there's lots of trees or you know there's no trees and those little things those observations they're really kind of in informing you about children recognizing the the the, the change of landscape and what that does in terms of informing their mind so Kieran, like you said going to music practice in Edgebaston that's something that's rooted in your mind you remember it you remember how similar or dissimilar that might have looked to where you grew up, you know. These are yeah. changes that you notice and they're things that you recognise. But I think, you know, as you said, it, it is really something that stands out. Mm. Um, different sides, the tale of two cities. Yeah. It, it, it really is. And we, we have to kind of really acknowledge that in terms of how it shapes our perception growing up, especially as black people growing up in cities. Mm-hmm. When, um, when I think about, you know, talk, you were talking about like education, we're talking mm. about like, um, how like race and racism. I think when I think about race and education, I never think about early years. So I never think about nurseries. I never, it always, I think it's always get to put on like universities or colleges and schools where it doesn't filter down. Mm. When you, when you say that you're, you're teaching about racism and racism in these settings, like what mm. do you actually mean? Like what are the things that you might have encountered? So I guess what we're looking at as society as a whole, society is rooted in white supremacy, first of all, which means yeah. everything, every institution that is built on that, you know, is coming out of a place of white supremacy. The lens through which we see blackness is coming from a place of white supremacy. And so mm. it's really important that we acknowledge that, first of all, and understand that our children are going to be subject to those same messages, those messages about how they should look 
those messages about how they should interact, those messages around gender stereotypes, those things influence all children, irrespective of race. But there are things that are going to kind of disproportionately impact black children based mm. on the wider society. So, for instance, we talk about colorism, we talk about shadism. That's a very real thing. If you're a little black girl and you're three and the only children that you see around you have got straight, long, brunette, blonde, you know, red hair and your hair grows in a different direction and it's tightly coiled and it's very springy and bouncy and soft, depending on the messaging that you get about how you should feel about that is going to shape your perception, isn't it? And we already know that the wider society tells us that you know, to have an Afro isn't actually looked at as a positive thing. We, we're noticing like now, I guess, a renaissance of embracing quote unquote blackness, you know, mm. embracing, you know, brown skin, black skin, dark skin. It's almost like it's, and you don't want it to be, but it feels kind of a bit of a trend. Um, but for many black girls growing up, for many, many black boys growing up, they will know what it's like to be on the receiving end of having colorist statements you know, directed at them if they're not the right shade of black, whatever yeah. that means. So children are picking those messages up. So when we talk about anti-racism in the early years, we're talking about really the messaging and the coding and what conversations are being had with the people who are coming to work in the sector around their awareness of those things. Because you also can't assume everybody knows that. Yeah. We can't assume that's something that they know. But one of the things that I think has really kind of stuck out for me in terms of like the anti-racism is just around aspiration and what happens if the practitioner if it's in a school the teacher what happens if the practitioner doesn't have a particular expectation about your achievement those mm -hmm. seeds are planted very young way mm -hmm. before you've gone into primary school yeah. somebody tells you you're not good at something at three and they tell you that all the time you might start believing it if they tell you as a black boy sorry kieran you know what I'm saying you I mean, exactly at that age you wouldn't question it, would you? You just accept it because they're the adult, yeah. aren't they? And you're yeah. super young, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're super young. So if you're told, you know, you, you can't do that, you know, you might go into nursery one day and be like, I really want to be an astronaut. And then your practitioner will be like, Oh, I don't know if you could be an astronaut. Have you thought about perhaps being a bin man? Oh wow. Yeah. Not not in the wrong with collecting rubbish. Not in the wrong. However, we look at how we kind of shape the aspirations and the expectations of black children. And these conversations are had and sometimes statements are said really flippantly. You know, if you go now as as black men into certain spaces, um, and you talk about your educational experiences, I'm sure lots of judgments are made. When I go and appear on Instagram and I'm saying I'm the black nursery manager and I look the way that I look and I speak the way that I speak and people might see some letters after my name, they might start making assumptions. Yeah. No. So these things are placed on us from very early, but we have to actively counteract all of those messages and the coding that we get because a lot of that has happened before we've got to five years old. A mm -hmm. lot of that has happened. And for, for black children, it has much more severe impact because of systemic racism you know yeah. because of the way that society is set up so you it's interesting because obviously the government does a great job of just ignoring early years it's not important you know and then we start thinking oh well early years you just play don't you just get your lego yeah. out yeah you your dolls and, and that's it there's so many messages about as i said who you are what you should do what you shouldn't do um and particularly around gender for black children there are really kind of constrained but like gender normatives which people feel and believe that you should um you should ascribe to 
Yeah. That's a load of rubbish. Yeah. yeah. I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, the work is um the work is heavy. There's nothing that we haven't even kind of got into yet, but we have to be really conscious about the messages that we are giving black children because mm-hmm. we want them to live full, joyous lives. Um and we must smash the system. Yeah, and that starts with children. We must encourage them to live a limitless kind of life. Uh, so that they can grow up to have that same vigor and that energy that our ancestors had in order to make change. Yeah, yeah. It's just like, I remember kind of like when I, I mean, I don't remember well, but I remember like when I was in early years and like all of the books and stuff that you learn, it was all like, do you remember Kieran, like beef and chip and things like that? And like, you'd, you'd say, oh, beef and you'd, chip. Yeah. <laughs> we probably had something similar. What was that like a story because of it? It was, yeah. Kieran, <laughs> <laughs> you don't know, remember beef and chip? Beef and chip, what's that? Like? <laughs> 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 I know who beef and chip is, man. Kieran, you, you, you know. Let me think, back to nursery. Ooh, we're going far back now, you know. You know, three, three, four years old. Rings a bell. What? Who were the two characters in a book? The two characters. They had. I'm sure they had like a series of stories about them. Oh, right. Okay. And they were obviously they're meant for men for early years, so they're meant for like five year olds, six mm. four year olds. So like they'll be rudimentary stories, like beef and chip goes to shop or beef and chip goes to seaside or whatever. Yeah. But the point I was making is that like when like in our time when we were growing up, we only ever saw whiteness whenever, um, whenever we were in these early mm, spaces. Right, yeah, 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 yeah. We only ever saw stories of white people. Like, if you'd only taken it from, like, the books that you'd read or the TV shows that you'd watch, you wouldn't think that black people existed. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's so true. It's so true. It's like, true. I mm. When I think to these stories from nursery, I struggle to remember what happened in nursery, but reception definitely... Um, I remember getting excited to take my first book home, but you don't realize all years later, it's all white faces that you see. Yeah. We had, we had one book. Was it by Anne Cameron? Um, I think I just remember this one book by, cause he's got the same surname as me. And I think one of the teachers at school said, are you related? I was like, well, I don't know. Like, I don't know. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. Like, <laughs> <'cause> <laughs> ask you that. yeah, yeah. Cause I had the same surname. Um, how stupid! How stupid can one person be? I don't know. Well, Ainsley, you know, if you're black and you got the same surname, you must be. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm like, I've got a big family, and um, obviously, like, sort of, um, sort of Caribbean, African Caribbean um, descendants of slaves. A lot of there are a lot of Scottish surnames about. So I thought mm. I might be disrelated to it. I don't know, but I remember that was a book that really stood out because it had an actual black girl in it, mm. um, which was very unusual, especially in the early nineties. Um, but everything else, even like, you know, the Mr. Men books? Yeah. So they were all like, they weren't actually white. They were like yellow, weren't they? But you could yeah. just tell, like, who they were supposed That's to That's really made me think now, like, rah, Mr. Men? And the little Mr. book, you, you, you didn't... Yeah, exactly. It's... You didn't think, oh, these are actually, they're black people. Yeah. Your default setting was that you thought, oh, they're mm-hmm. white. And that was very normalised. Yeah, mm-hmm. Now we're growing into the consciousness that... Mm-hmm. Yeah. You look at everything else that you get fed at that age as well. It's just, and I always talk about Disney cartoons that you race upon as well. It just, um, it centers and normalizes whiteness. 
And, and you might argue that, oh, you know, you expect it because this is the country we're in. But then when you grow up and you kind of think, it's a whole white supremacist system that you're talking about, Liz. It's like it, it's from early that that's mm. put into your head from so, from so early. And it's um, it is damaging. Like, mm-hmm. It is. It is. And if you think you grew up, you know, at a time where we didn't kind of like really acknowledge that, unless you were kind of seen as somebody like um, from what they would call, you know, a radical or pan-African black family, you know, your, your culture and your heritage would have been kind of um, really pushed and there would have been things that would have been kind of cultural norms between you if you were from a Jamaican family or if you were from a Ghanaian family or if you're from, you know, a Somali family. There would have been cultural norms, but nothing um, widely within the education system would have honed in on black identity in all of its forms. Because, of course, we're not a homogenous group, but, of course, there is something to be said about seeing black characters in a book. And you know that it's bad because in 2020, we're so excited about having black children's literature. That's how you know, because we're just like, wow! You know how much people will message me on Instagram about... There's a book with, with black kids in it. Like, <laughs> we, we, it's like when you see black people on the TV, everybody would run downstairs. Yeah. <laughs> We're talking about that now. Like, yeah. 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 <laughs> how, how are you like, oh, there's a black family in EastEnders. There's a black person on an advert. I remember going to America and just being like, well, I'm just black people on the TV. It's just normal. Normal, yeah. Just normal. And it makes you think how far behind the UK is that the UK likes to tell itself that they're not racist. You know, we've imagined it yeah. <laughs> it's in our heads, you know, and yeah. if, if, if people are racist to us, we should just ignore it. We should turn a blind eye. Um, but the Disney thing, I really, um, I highlight that in, uh, in my, my webinar, um, inclusion in role play. Um, and if you don't mind, I just want to say a little bit about the, the webinar because it links quite nicely to yeah, the sure. podcast. Um, because the, the first webinar that I put on last month was about inclusion in role play, giving people key things to think about. If they've got black children in their setting, and even if they don't, what is in the role play area, in the kitchen area? Have we just got, you know, bangers and mash? Or have we got a bit of chicken seasoning in there? You know, have we got an empty packet of thyme? Have we got an empty Maggie Cube packet? You know, we're mixing it up. Are we letting black children know that their culture within the food is represented within a role play? Mm. Yeah. In the dressing up area, have we got a, a Rastaman hat with, with, um, with locks? Because that needs to go in the bin. God, we shouldn't have that in our role play area because our hair is not dressing up. Do you know what I mean? But yeah. you'd be surprised because <laughs> some nurseries do have that, you know. But are we making sure that we are respectfully celebrating children's cultural backgrounds in the role play area? Are we thinking about those things? So I put that webinar on. It was an absolute success. I couldn't believe people paid to come and listen to me speak to a computer screen, because of course, you know, we had to do everything over, over the, um, the internet on, on a webinar. And then the second thing that I thought about was that I wanted to make sure that I made kind of donations and contributions. So that yeah. first webinar, I made a donation to um, a black-led organization. The second webinar, called Black Boy Joy, by no coincidence, um, <laughs> <laughs> that, I am, that I am doing on this, you know, on, on Tuesday. I don't know when this will come out, but it's on Tuesday the 25th of, um, of August. But I decided that I wanted to make a, a contribution to this podcast, basically. Black Boy Joy is going to be a webinar that talks about the importance of creating joyous spaces for black boys under five mm. to be able to be free, to be able to be, as I said, limitless, to be able to be who they want to be. And because I've been a long time fan of your podcast, 
um, Ainsley, I reached out to you, didn't I? Like a little yes, stalker. Yes. Hi, <laughs> <laughs> your DMs. Um, but you know, I I wanted to kind of get in contact with you and just say I wanted to make the contribution um, from each registrant, you know, a two pound yeah. donation just to the podcast, so that I could hopefully donate you something with with three figures. Um, because I just really feel like the work that you're doing is very important. And one of the things that I cover in the webinar is kind of gender constraints, which is something that's really come up in the nursery a lot when I've talked about the importance of modeling relationship types. You know, the black community has got a big problem with understanding and realizing that there is not one way to have a family. Or there is, they'll accept, you know, Two-parent families, as long as the two parents are different genders. Yeah. Um, a single-parent family, you know, as long as the single parent is the mother. Um, but same-sex families, we're still not ready to have those conversations. And yeah. guess what, guys? It's here. You know, it's always been here. <laughs> Nothing you can do. Mm. And I really had a lot of contention around that. And just kind of speaking to the parents, the black parents, about the fact that, listen, we cannot be here talking about Black Lives Matter if you want to be selective about which Black Lives Matter in yeah, this. This exactly. has got to be an absolute 100% inclusive movement, yeah, which embraces and understands the complexity and intersectionality of LGBTQIA. You've got to understand that this is a thing where we've got to actually let children know you can be who you want to be, you know? And Black yeah. Boy Joy is really about celebrating that because it's been something that's very close to my heart um, and it's something that I just feel we as a community, we have to get to grips with understanding you cannot control your child's sexuality. And why are you concerned about your child's sexuality anyway? Yeah. Why is that even a thing? You know, your child's four, five, three, living their life. If they grow up and they decide that they don't like boys and they like girls or they don't like girls, they like boys or they, yeah. you know, or they have a trans identity when they are older. Let them yeah. live their life, man. But we need to start doing the work from now. And so, Boy Joy is basically an ode to limitless identity and freedom and joy. And I just, as I said, wanted to just say, I'm making that donation to That's you. Because it's really yeah. sold out. Ooh, ooh, ooh. That's yeah, incredible. That's <laughs> Honestly, like, it's so, hum it's so humbling that, like, you can listen to, like, the podcasts we do, the stuff, like, um, obviously when we started at Kieran and I we just I don't know we were just two mates we had something we wanted to say so we decided to put it on tape and release it to the world like we're just dipping our toes in it we're just going for it and seeing what happened yeah so if, if people are getting something from it that's yeah but I also wanted to say that like it makes me so happy to hear that like you are embracing kind of like all of all facets of like our black lives um, as you know, like in our community, like specifically the black community, there is such an issue, like a point of contention with ideas of gender and sexuality. And I think that like, even though sort of like the rest of the world, we're in 2020 now, there's still a lot in, in our community at least, they still treat, treat other people who aren't just straight or cisgender as if like it's a disease or something, mm -hmm. or is it mm -hmm. something that like, that we've caught and, um, and that can be passed on to other people. And so it just makes, I think it just makes me happy. It, I mean, it makes me happy and humble that there's someone like you who's in a position of leadership, who is helping, um, helping to educate young minds and now adults, who is actually like an ally and a supporter. Mm -hmm. Honestly, like, I don't think I could really name any, anyone that I could confidently say if, um, if we're talking about our black identities, 
all of it would really be here for it, mm-hmm. be here for mm-hmm. it. And I don't mm-hmm. really underestimate how important that is for us. Man, it is. And, and that makes what, me happy and sad. Yeah. <coughs> like, like you were saying this as well, like the early years, that I think there is sometimes a tendency to overlook them because you think it's just, oh, you're just waiting for school to happen. But even at that age, you know, things are happening. People are getting conditioned to think in certain ways and they are important for like for a sense of identity and sort of racial and cultural identity and not to be kind of brainwashed by thinking, thinking that your identity is like to the side and not the default or something. Very important. And I've, I've not really thought about it too Hopefully. much until we, until we were in contact with you, Liz, to be fair. I've not really, it hadn't really crossed my mind too much mm-hmm. of how early this kind of, um, mm-hmm. like the sort of the wayward thinking starts. Yeah. Mm. and the programming and you know i think some of the things that we uh, you know as a community we like to celebrate the arts we like to celebrate creative things we like to celebrate <coughs> literature and movements and people need to understand that a lot of things were born out of non-cis identities <coughs> it wasn't a cisgender identity that always created the, the the beauty and the creativity and the fashion and everything that we love that's facts Mm. Yeah, and the intersection of the black you know, queer movement in particular <clears throat> that was the foundation for a lot of things that were happening way before we were even born that we are reaping the benefits of now so why are we so concerned about whether you know if a little boy falls over and he starts crying and you say don't don't cry you know boys don't cry <laughs> boys do cry <laughs> like, that's a part of kind of gender conditioning to say that if you are a boy, you know, and you cry, that means that you're less of a boy, which then translates into less of a man, which then translates into you're a big 44-year-old man and you never cried. Because nobody, yeah. when you were little, said boys don't cry. Yeah. It is, it is as, you know, it's as deep as that. And in the dressing up area, your son might want to go and put on a tutu. I'm not going to stop him. He likes the ballerina outfit. Let him put it on, but... There have been situations where, you know, dads in particular have kicked off. And I'm just like, not here for it. Because what you're yeah. saying to me is blatant, rampant homophobia. Yeah. I'm not here for it. It's not happening. Mm. And these are ideals that are pushed onto our children. And you know, you know, things, if we get really deep about it, we talk about mental health within the black community with black men, suicide rates with black men, things about not feeling like you can be your whole self. That is mental torture. It is trauma. Mm-hmm. Are we encouraging our children to do that? To start yeah. closing off parts of themselves? Yeah. You know? So, it, as I said, it makes me happy, it makes me sad, but I think allyship is more, it's just more about what you are doing. I think we've got really lost in the, the word allyship, you know, we've associated to white people showing us that they're with us. <clears throat> but what about the allyship within our own community? Yeah. I think that's actually a really important point that you just made because I do think you are correct that like when people do think of allyship, they do that we the default is always like I don't want to get I don't want to get into like white savior complexes, but it is having like that white cisgender person who is who you think it is to help you to lift you up, which is great. There's nothing wrong with that, but at the same time, like we are like I said, we have a community of people, and like we have I think we have everything that we need to help lift each other up, and I think that we us as a black community don't always do the best job of doing that and so yeah so especially because like obviously like we're a black queer man you're a black woman i think i kind of feel like it's all like it's like a natural it's like a natural it's a natural thing for Mm -hmm. me to want to do whatever i can Mm -hmm. to make sure that you are lifted up and supported as possible i think you've been doing the same but we don't really think i don't really think of it that way necessarily like 
the first thing that comes to my mind isn't actually like being in our own community and doing that first. It's always like going outside, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah it does. It's so true. So yeah. true. Um, and as I said, I think it's really, <clears throat> it's a sad indictment sometimes when you really kind of deep it. If we, um, you know, if we think about being ourselves, our whole selves, what that means, what that looks like, how that sounds, you know, even things like that, you know, how things sound, being concerned with how, you know, children walk or don't walk, you know, the things that I could tell you about what I've seen in my time, you know, parents' concerns, you know, is your child happy? That, that's all you should yeah. be concerned about. Mm. Never mind about how do they walk, what clothes do they wear, commenting on the clothes of other children, then encouraging children to comment on the other children's clothes. You know, yeah. oh, your jeans are too tight. My mum says, if, <laughs> you know, it's these kinds of things. <laughs> the conversation you'll hear between three-year-olds, black three-year-olds, it's really interesting. Yeah. There are a lot of assumed ways of being um, that are just uh, are funneled down. We must dismantle this, um, this mindset by thinking really carefully about our practice. Um, and just, as I said, the messages that, that we're giving children um, in, in our community. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I wanted to ask you a question, actually. Mm-hmm. You said before that you were in um, early years and you took some time out to train as a secondary school teacher. Yes. What made you make that change to, like, secondary education and to do that training and to, get, and to go into that? Because I assume you could have just, like, continued doing early years for, like, your entire career. So yeah, yeah. That motivated you to, to, to do <clears throat> I wanted to see who was coming into the sector. So usually what happens in childcare is the workforce is traditionally quite young. The workforce is a, a, a workforce that hasn't gotten to the hairdressing course that have been put onto the childcare course. And the course is usually delivered at sixth form level or college. Mm-hmm. So when I was teaching secondary, I wanted to kind of just stretch myself, number one, and get out of my kind of comfort zone around working in early years and actually informing the practice of the next generation of practitioners. And that meant going into to teach secondary, to qualify as a secondary school teacher, which allowed me to teach sixth form and allowed me to teach childcare, health and social care, um, and then drama because my first degree was in drama. But it, I was coming straight out of industry. And I think as a teacher, that's rare, isn't it? You're coming straight out of the industry that you're going to teach in. I did a little bit of, um, you know, guest lecturing at local colleges as well whilst I was training um, and also whilst I'd been at the nursery as a nursery manager. But I really was interested in the workforce, if I'm honest. I wanted to know that they were coming in and they were being taught by somebody who knew what was happening on the ground. Mm-hmm. And the school that I chose to go and um, teach at was a girls' school which is really interesting. I was very interested in kind of single sex education and how that looked, what that, you know, felt like. Um, because I think that has a real implication to shaping young people's minds. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just very intrigued about, I guess, the racial makeup of the teaching staff, because it was a school that was predominantly black and brown. Majority of the teachers were white. Um, I came in, I was relatively young. Um, I looked fabulous. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was only a win-win situation for the students. Um, but it meant that I created some really great and valuable relationships. And I was able to really take some of those young women under my, my wing, as it were. And I still mentor um, some of those young women now. Um, and that was some 10 years ago that I was at the school. So some of those young women now, you know, are 24, you know, they've got their degrees, they're working, you know, in really great positions. But they were in a school where school was kind of really telling them they weren't probably going to amount to much. And again, expectation, expectation, expectation. Um, and I just think 
that jump, it might seem a bit strange, but I just was really interested in the workforce and the sector. If I knew I had some kind of input and influence into shaping the minds of those young people who wanted to do childcare, I knew I would have kind of done my bit because I knew what I was going to deliver the real in a classy, sassy, <laughs> black, black way. Um, and I embraced that, do you know what I mean? Went for the interviews, they loved me, got the job, and they paid for me to train. Um, qualified and they're bounced. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I'm walking right, you know what I mean? I had a life plan, I had things doing, you know what I mean? Well, you're going to pay for me to qualify. Of course I'm going to do that. And I continue to teach for a year after, but I was like, right, time to get back into the family business. Get right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. I can only imagine what your classes were like. I can only imagine. <laughs> I loved teaching. I loved my students. I absolutely adored them because it was a vibe. It was just a vibe. Uh, at the time, I wasn't married, so I was Miss Kerr. Um, and if there was behavior management issues in other classes, girls would be like, bun this class and go to Miss Kerr's class. The end. And they just, oh my God, they just sit at the back. I'd be like, whose lesson have you just walked out of? You know, and you start getting into, again, the microaggressions of teachers and things that were happening and people were causing, like, lots of conflicts within the school around how to manage and talk and communicate with, you know, black and brown students. It was a vibe. I absolutely adored teaching. Um, and I just realized the power of affinity. If you have an affinity with the students and the young people that you are engaging with, nothing, you know, can come in between that. Relationships are everything. And, of course, as well at secondary Lots of things are happening in puberty. I'm going to go back into that gender thing again. You're exploring yourself sexually. You're thinking about what it is that you want to do, where you want to go, how you want to express. Um, and that, that was happening. And I think to feel like they had somebody that they could relate to, talk to, who wasn't going to judge them. Um, judgment is a big thing. And shame is a big thing in our community. Um, and I think at that age, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15, lots of things are going on emotionally for you. So, yeah, man, my classroom was a vibe, basically. <laughs> <laughs> what was it like being, like, a young black woman, like, in, like, in, in that, kind of, uh, that, that kind of environment, especially because you mentioned that the teaching force wasn't like, wasn't like you? Well, there's always this kind of um, intrigue, isn't there? And sometimes it kind of was interpreted as a bit of just, like, I think exoticism from the white male teachers, um, oh, the, need, really? the need to flirt, the need to make the odd cheeky comment. But, you know, that's what happens in a system which is kind of dominated by patriarchy. Um, and when we think about how black female bodies are exploited and hypersexualized, you know, in a school environment, it's not any different. And, um, you know, of course, I, I have a very strong will. And I guess you get to know now I like to talk. Um, but yeah, it was, you know, there was a small group of us who were black, um, and South Asian teachers, but I think I was just very aware of the white gaze. I was very aware of the white gaze as a black mm -hmm. quote unquote young teacher with tattoos. Um, I had my long acrylics them times as well. I also had blonde hair. Interestingly, I was going for my little Mary J. Blige. So I showed up, you know, but um, I think all of these things, you know, it, it really, it's a very, it's a myth buster. Um, 
And again, also in my image at that time, it showed that I was not, as I said, playing into respectability politics. I was there, I was qualified, I was able to do the job. Um, the, the students loved me, the results were where they needed to be, and everybody learned something as a result of being in my lessons. But that's also helped now with me being a trainer and a consultant because mm -hmm. I'm delivering the real, I'm teaching you know, so when I'm doing my webinars, you're not just sitting to have a chat with me. You're here to learn. You're here to listen. And particularly in the area of anti-racism, you're here to start doing the work. Um, yeah. And so it's, it's, it's these crossover transferable skills, isn't it? Because I'm, I'm utilizing those things um, yeah. now as well. The Black Mercy Manager, sorry, I'm jumping around. It's fine. Was, um, when I was looking at it, because obviously it's been a while. It's been a while that you've had that you've had like your um, social media, like the, mm -hmm. all that stuff going. And I've always thought to myself, because like when you when you're on it, especially like when you are sort of like doing those little snippets of videos or you've written articles. Two great things about what you do is that like it's very easy to understand, and like and, and it's very direct. But at the same time, I always think because you because you're the black nurse manager, does that sometimes put a bit of a target on your back? As in, like, I kind of feel that like if you are saying something in such a plain, such a plain, eloquent, eloquent way, people are gonna feel a bit defensive, a bit taken aback by like the things you're trying to lay out to them. Has mm. that happened when you? Yeah, of course it has, and it's good because it shows that learning's taking place, especially when white people start getting in their feelings and start being fragile. But as I say on my page, you know, it's not a space for white fragility. And if you feel that fragility coming on, either go and sit down somewhere else or sit in the discomfort and move through it. Um, in terms of having a target on my back, everybody that speaks their truth, if you have um, uh, an identity that's racialized as black, it's always going to be a targeting anyway. Mm. Why not be in a space where I can empower, educate and instruct and also to encourage other black people who might be in a situation where they work in the education system or they work in the early year sector because it's also quite inspiring for other people to see somebody just speaking directly and speaking in their truth. I have lived for 38 years. I can do what the fuck I want. You know, it's just that. And I don't make any apologies. I don't not um, um, swear on my page. I don't not, you know, encourage people to laugh at things that I think are funny. You know, I'll put things on my stories. Um, I'll tell you as it is. And of course, I've had pushback. I had pushback from the white saviour complex post that I put up. Um, from a white guy that is a, um, you know, was on a gap year and did a, a placement in a country in Africa. You know, he was in his feelings, in his white fragility feelings in my DMs. And I had, you know, I had a white woman come and misbehave in my comments, you know, the other week. And I just popped onto the live in the evening. And the title of my live was... Um, why white women need to behave themselves before they come into my comments. That was a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> to let you know, put out a public service announcement, how you must behave when you come into my comments. Because I'm not here for it. We're not going to be silenced. This is not the time of um, slavery or uh, apartheid. Yeah, we're not doing that. We're here. We're here to stay. We've been here many, 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 many hundreds of years. I am not going to be silenced. I'm not going to be policed. I'm certainly not going to be told what I can and can't say and how I should say it. Um, yeah, that's dead to mm. me. So, um, yeah, of course people have been fragile, Ainsley. Of course people have felt like perhaps, you know, I'm saying too much, but 
I just don't care. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just don't care. But yeah. not caring is liberating, and I need to get to a stage where I'm at that as well because it just frees you up. Absolutely. I was going to ask actually, um, because you know you said this is a sort of family business, um, mm-hmm. the nursery. Have you always got sort of known that this is what you wanted to go into, or did you consider other paths, or are you just passionate about this one? Or no, uh, not at all, Kieran. I was standing on the ground floor of H and M. You know, mm-hmm. I was in. I was I was clearing rail at H and M on Corporation Street after I graduated. Mm-hmm. You know, I was living that retail dream. You get me? Like mm-hmm. it was it was such a, a kind of like a, a strange moment when I was just standing at the fitting room and I just graduated and I was at De Montfort in Leicester and I moved back to Birmingham and I was just like, yeah, this ain't it, you know. H and M, it's been fun, but I gotta go. And that's when I said I went into kind of speaking to my mom about like give me a job please and she's like you gotta come for an interview i'm like don't be silly i'm your daughter and she's <laughs> like, <"Nah." laughs> like, nah, you know you gotta come for an interview um and if you know you know if you know ivanka you like she does she's not here to play so mm. yeah i did have to like fill out an application form and go for an interview sell myself i needed to tell her what it is that i intended to do um, but it was good training. It was a good foundation for me to think about my career in that respect because it made me carve out my own path um, yeah. and just really think about how I can kind of influence um, and change hearts and minds of young people. So, yeah, it wasn't anything. It was never a dream, Kieran. I was never like, when I grow up, I just want to be a nursery manager. <laughs> a calling, yeah. <laughs> yeah it wasn't just in the playground like can't wait to have a nursery i just can't <laughs> wait um yeah no i was interested in journalism actually mm-hmm. when i was younger um and acting and singing because i did a lot of performing arts and theater through my early early years um but yeah i'm glad that this is where the kind of path has taken me would you not say that you've you've kind you're kind of coming a bit full circle now like you have your early years experience you've um you've trained you've been a manager you've been a teacher what you saying i'm a drama queen ain't you? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> 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 but like for instance like i was reading like a really great article that you wrote about um about your experiences in second school teaching school teaching is what mm. uh, prompted me to ask you about it and all the um all the broadcasting you do like when you sit in front of a camera and you speak so like I think like any interest that you've had in journalism is kind of starting to come out just in a way that fits in with like the experiences that you've had already kind of totally, yeah I'd agree with that and I think it's always kind of um you know you guys do uh, music and have had an interest in kind of that element of things and there's something when you've got a creative bug <clears throat> no matter what you do that always comes out yeah. in some way shape or form um and I have really enjoyed some of the kind of media broadcasting things um opportunities to be parts of documentaries and, and news items and stuff um because yeah it lends itself to what i would say what my natural disposition is um mm-hmm. i am quite performative you know i do like to express myself um and do that in what i would see you know not everybody might think i'm funny i think i'm funny yeah. um but also delivering information at the same time as, you know, there being humour, because it's a very dark subject we're talking about. You know, racism is horrific, it's traumatic, it's not nice. 
And I'm not saying to laugh it away, but it has to be delivered in a way that's engaging because people switch off. Yeah. About racism, um, obviously we know we're in kind of a time now that like Black Lives Matter is on the lips of like everyone. I don't know if actually, this is a good question for like all of us, like all three of us. Obviously like we're doing our podcast now and I am trying to be a conscious black person. But I don't really know like what to do now, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like we've had our marches now. Um we've yeah, like we've seen we've seen black bodies, especially in America, being killed in what spotlights are. People have had um people have had marches, people like um the companies have put out their statements um and everything, but now it's like everything's the same again. Mm. And like I'm not I'm kinda of, I don't really know what to do to keep propelling us forward and mm. to keep like actually like do things in real ways that's actually gonna help us. I really don't know I'm, I'm really at a loss at like what to do now what to do next to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> one thing about this is you know it's it is a movement, it's not a moment. Things will always kind of remain constant unless there is people power and people power to smash systems, literally and figuratively. We've always been black. This is the only, you know, ethnicity that we've known unless you have been like Rachel Dolziel or whatever her name is. Yeah. You know, she decided actually white life is not for me. Um, However, we have been living in this black skin, haven't we? And in this black body. And I remember, you know, you spoke about James Baldwin on your, um, on your podcast, your, your last podcast. And I, I was just really reflecting on some of the things in literature that he had written and talking about, you know, our identity, thinking about some of the things that great activists have done way before us being here. Our black skin is always going to be here. We're always going to be black, yeah? The responsibility is not on us, right, to solve racism because racism is not our problem. That's the first thing. Racism is something that we are on the receiving end of. But one of the psychological states of racism is it uh, makes the victim feel as though it's our fault, we're to blame, and we must be always doing something. So when you talk about feeling like, what, you know, what are we supposed to do next? Well, anything, we're just going to just beat us, isn't it? We're just going to keep up. Our existence is resistance. Yeah. It's really important that you understand that, particularly in terms of the intersections that you both sit in. Your existence is resistance. There is nothing more we can do. We have been doing what we've been doing for centuries. The white people, the oppressors, the people that marginalize us because of something we can't help, they need to just go and do the work. And I know it's a word and a term that's been really saturated, but they literally need to go and do the work. We have got black academics and black scholars, black people writing manuals to tell people how to not to be racist. Do you know how bizarre that is? Yeah. There are people who have produced workbooks. Leila Essard has written Me and White Supremacy. It is an active workbook for white people to read, sit down with their brethren and tick off, right, okay, and do this reflective practice. And it's an amazing piece of, of, of literature. It's an amazing resource. But this is where we've got to. 
you have to make sure we've got this reading list that we can dish out to our white friends. Like, have you read a Carla Natives? Have you read Rene Edo Lodge? You know, while no longer talking to white people. Have you read Leila Estard, Near White Supremacy? Have you read Ibram X. Kendi? You know, um, how not to be, an, how to be an anti-racist. We have texts that we are readily giving to our white friends to do the work. There's nothing for us to do. We are just living. The police are still killing us. The NHS is still killing us. The education system is still killing us. Tory government is still killing us. What more can we do? You know, we've been nice. We've been forgiving. We've turned the other cheek. We've kind of been like, oh, it's okay. Don't worry if you pronounce my name wrong. You know, what, 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 other, what other things are we supposed to do? So when I think about how people have expressed the uprisings of black people and non-black people and non-black people of colour, some of those uprisings have been absolutely just. Drag down the statue in Bristol. Yes, Colston needs to go. Roads must fall in Oxford. Yes, it needs to get drawn down. Because what else are we supposed to be doing now? Just sitting down and just, just, just waiting. Yeah, there are reactions, I think, emotionally to the impact and the trauma of racism. However, there's nothing more we can do than what we're doing already. Yeah. I think for me, I, I mean, I totally agree with you. But, like, I think um, in another podcast, Kieran and I touched on this sort of thing, that I completely agree that, like, it is up, it is up to white people, essentially, to figure out racism since white people cause and benefit from racism. But at the same time, if I say that, I kind of feel like I'm waiting for a white person to do something, and I don't want to sit and wait, if that makes sense. Mm-mm-mm. So, yeah, so... Um, I guess, like, what we're doing now, like, when we call out instances of racism when, um, when we see it, and I guess, like, especially, like, um, us being, like, us being, having marginalised identities of the black queer men, you as a black woman, is like, just be as, like, as proud and open as you can, I guess. Yeah. And that's, like, it is, sometimes it's a, it's a hard thing to do. It's a hard thing to do. Yeah, 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 of course it is. And nobody said that. It's easy kind of just being proud of your identity in every way, shape and form. It is because everybody's telling us that we shouldn't be, you know, too loud for a black girl. You know, why are black girls always like this? You know, why do you have to be so aggressive? Why do you have to shout? Why do you have to be angry? Mm-hmm. You know, as a, as a black queer man, why do you have to be gay? Yeah. Why do you have to talk? Like, why do you have to walk? Like, it's just like, come on, man. Yeah. Like, just let me live. I'm just, I'm just literally living my life. Yeah. Um, of course, it is. It, it, it's very oppressive. And I think also, as I said, we have to continue to just, exist because as I said, that, that is our form of resistance and existing our true selves where and however we can whatever that might mean to you um and that takes I think it takes practice life is life is kind of like it's, it's a practice it's a practice run and every day we're evolving and we're growing and we're changing um yeah I don't know what much what more to say I, I think on that Kieran, have you got anything you'd like to say? No, I, I understand that sort of we can't cure racism as black people. We have to do, go about doing what we do. The only thing I think we can do actively is like raise awareness by things we do, like with the podcast, connecting people like Liz and other people who are interested in these subjects. Um, it's a difficult one because you know that any kind of massive societal changes take time. 
but then you don't want to limit yourself to thinking, oh, you know, let's just take it easy, like, you know, and, and time will take care of the rest of it. Kind of thing. You don't want to feel like you're resting on your laurels. Um, but ultimately, it is the kind of thing that it's going to take a long time for it to solve. But that doesn't, that doesn't mean that we get lazy with it. But I think we just end up, we carry on doing what we're doing of talking about our culture and our issues loud and proud. I think that's a way to, to go about it, essentially. Um, but the, the main legwork isn't down to us, as Liz was saying. I do agree with that. Um, it's such a massive issue, and I think racist attitudes, what we've seen recently when people have to really sort of self-examine with the Black Lives Matter movement is it's not a case of that there's a bunch of rabid racists running around and people like calling each other slurs. It's a case of that it's it's so heavily ingrained in society that that people were socialised to have sort of racist opinions without even realising it. And it's that that's the part that's going to take time to kind of overcome. But mm. I am a bit optim, bit more optimistic recently, definitely. Mm. But it is is a case of you know it's not down to us to solve it, but we can just keep spreading the word of you know what we're about and what we can do. And it's policy. It's in policies. It's in systems. That's why there's such a push for us to really grasp the 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 breadth and the depth of racism. Racism is not about changing hearts and minds. Ultimately, it's about changing policies and structures. It's about making sure that we are as a collective. All of us are moving in the same direction. Mm-hmm. We can, like, somebody is, you know. Um, has ingrained so you know racist views. Yeah, you, you know you can try and da, 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 but we have to think bigger. We can't think and um, always. Uh, of course, individualized acts of racism are gross and disgusting. We also need to think about the wider social, political, societal, systemic structures of racism, which are deeply ingrained. And that's what I said at the start of the podcast. You know, white supremacy. Got to get white people have got to be used to being called white, first of all. They're just about using black when they're introducing me as the black nursery manager. So, mm. <laughs> there's, there's, it's true, there's work to do, you know, just in the base level terminology. Yeah, yeah I completely agree. I think oh, I'm gonna ask actually, have you had any awkward moments with that? Like, people not wanting to call you the black nursery manager, or that be of course. Like- yeah, you know what it's like when white people say black, the, bl- the black, black nursery manager, you know, it's, uh, or the black nursery manager. Yeah, of course it is, it's uncomfortable, but it's the intention behind me making sure that I branded myself so, because you're going to say black, because you're sure as hell not going to say coloured, and you're not yeah. going to say any other word, you're going to say yeah. black, and you're going to say it with your whole chest, um, so that there's no, there's no mistake or misinterpretation of the thing. That is my brand and, you know, my training and consultancy company is called the Black Nursery Manager Training and Consultancy Limited. Yeah. So you will say anybody and everybody's going to say it. And when I'm delivering at whatever level, wherever I go, that's going to be on my invoices. You know, it's going to be in the introduction. It's going to be on my slides. It's, it's everywhere. Like There's no getting around uh-huh. it, yeah. There's yeah. no getting around <laughs> it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're going to call me Liz Pemberton. You're not going to do that, yeah? Only, that's only for friends and family. But for work... You're gonna call me the black nurse you made yourself. Yeah. Oh, I love that song. <laughs> the energy. <laughs> there was one thing I wanted to ask about. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if we can get into it now. But basically, you know, uh, last year, I think it was, um, mm-hmm. I hate that it was Birmingham that this came up in, but it was um, in Spark Hill when there were mm-hmm. like protests outside the school about. 
the No Outsiders campaign. The No Outsiders campaign. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I've, um, that, oh, yeah. Trust me. Where are we? <laughs> well, I was like, I thought they were discussing well. um, the curriculum and talking about and gay lives. Yeah. You're telling my children to be gay. You're promoting the gay agenda. Because people haven't got any... What's the name from Labour? Jess... MP for Yardley was it? Was yes, it her? Phillips. Yes, Phillips. Yeah, her, her constituency wasn't it, and obviously we got oh. very mixed feelings about her. But I think it was that, wasn't it? That that episode here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so I think to give some context, sorry. So um, what we're talking about was like sometime. I think it was like early last year, so 2019, before Miss Rona, Miss Rona came and um, and dominated everything. I think it might have been 2018. You know. I think if I think you're right, yeah. I remember listening to like a Guardian like a podcast mm-hmm. about it, and mm-hmm. I think you are correct. It started then, but I think it like went on over into the next year. And when it got into mm-hmm. like, headlines, it was more 2019. But essentially, there was um, there was like I, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's like a curriculum or like some like I think it was like social kind of uh, lesson that was done about all sorts of things. And in that, there was, in the curriculum, there was something about LGBT uh, lives. And in the curriculum, it was just being taught that basically LGBT, LGBT people exist, they live lives, um, and that's it. And that's basically yeah. it. That is it. Yeah. That is it. The end, you know. Yeah. There wasn't an element in there where there was a banana and a condom and you were teaching six-year-olds how to put a condom on. Yeah. And there wasn't video footage of, you know, um, gay sex, which is what I think people thought was happening. Yeah. It was done out of proportion, wasn't it, really? Of course it was, because people are absolutely stupid. Yeah. That's why. <laughs> Basically, yeah. Basically, people are absolutely stupid and homophobic, and they need to go and sort their lives out. You know, what, 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 what are people doing, man? Like, where are we? Yeah. What era do we live in? Are people okay? And before people go and stop and go and get the information, they're on the street and they're protesting. Yeah. I said this all day. You can't, you know, you can't control your ch- If your child is going to be gay, what are you going to do then? You can't control that anyway. But what is important for children to have is information and knowledge and everything was age appropriate. Yeah. Everything. Nobody was having a... In school, in primary school, kiss chase was the game, and it, you just ran, and the boys would run after you until they got you and they kissed you. Now, in this day and age, that seems a bit problematic, doesn't it? Yeah. Kiss chase. I'm thinking. I'm thinking. Hashtag me too. I'm thinking. Hashtag me too. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. This okay. Is my story, but... <laughs> so, but you want to talk to me about the No Outsiders campaign? I'm just like, people need to get a grip. And stop being because it's rooted in homophobia, and that is it. It's rooted in homophobia, and that's all that I can say about it. You know, age appropriate. I have a I had a book at the nursery called The Princess Boy about a little black boy that likes to put on a, a a ballerina dress. Get over it. Books at the nursery. Me and my two nans, you know, or me and my two dads. Like, yeah, because what what are you gonna do? Like, it's just. When you think about it and you apply logic to it, it just makes no sense. People are stupid and I don't have time for it and I will not tolerate it or entertain conversations around why people think that's bad. If you think that's the case, well, keep them in your house and lock them up because, you know, the, you might go on the roadside and see two men kissing. What are you going to do? Yeah. Mm. What are you going to do? You might go down the road and see two women holding hands with your child. What are you going to do? You know? It's just as ridiculous as... 
yeah, I can't, it gets me gets me angry to be honest. Well, <laughs> I wanted your opinion, and I think you've given it. <laughs> <laughs> In short, you know, I don't beat around the bush, but um, yeah, that is my opinion. Oh. Like whatever, you know. I always say like you got to spend time really kind of thinking about the importance. If I understand that parents have a um, right to raise their child however they want to raise them, whatever, but don't raise your children to be racist. Don't raise your children to be homophobic. Don't raise your children to hate other people because they don't live the same lifestyle as you. It's just absolutely as simple as that. The end. I mean, I, I couldn't say it better myself. I, I and on that note... <laughs> <laughs> you asked, Ainsley, you asked. This is, that was the answer. You know, you wanted to get that question in, so, yeah. I did, and it was answered in only, only the way you could. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah um, thank you thanks. so much for, for speaking to, to us, Liz, because I've, I've learned a lot and I've, I've really enjoyed it. Oh, good. I'm just, I'm glad that, as I said, I was just able to just be me and be free, you know, um, and I just can't, I can't wait to get that money and put it in your account when yeah. this, you know, when the webinar's done, because you know what, Kieran, you can buy yourself a new microphone with that. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what's going on. I'm literally, I'm really biting this microphone and it just, it's... Sabotage! You know, Christmas has come early for you because of the toy joy webinar. So, yeah. So, any of your listeners that, you know, haven't already, you know, been following me, you want to get your little styles down to Instagram and go to at the Black Nursery Manager. That's what you want to do with your lives, you know, listeners. And be a part of the anti-racist movement for the early years. Come and let me... um welcome you into my very multifaceted world um my two minute videos about white supremacy um <laughs> and decolonizing the eyss which is the earliest foundation stage curriculum although it's not a curriculum but it is the curriculum for the under fives yes um i have a um i have a subscriber to the instagram account that read great content on it very informative very factual and broken down into into ways that you can understand and you can understand and can't like misquote or take out of context or anything like that. So I think um, what you're doing with your uh, the black nursery manager with your um, facilitating and training is just sort of like a combination of everything that you've learned and all the great experience that you have. And honestly, like uh, I don't want to, I don't mean to gas you up too much, early, <laughs> but if there are more people like you that like that. I was I was in and around when I was in education. Oh. It's so much better. And, I'm, and like I said, not me trying to gas you up, it's just a fact. Thank you. Thank so, you me, so, thank so you much. Thank uh, you. Being, well, we are Black Boy Joy. Um, you can also subscribe to us. We're at Black Boy Joy Podcast on um, Instagram. We are hosting on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you are subscribed to Apple Podcasts, please leave a glowing review. And um, any questions or queries, you can email us at uh, blackboyjoypodcast at gmail.com. But I'd rather spend this last time saying, uh, give as much love to Liz, give as much love to the Black Lurch Manager. She's doing good work. And thank you so much for being on Black Boy Joy Podcast. We've, I know I've learned a lot. I hope that the rest of this will have as well. So thank you. Thank you, guys. And that's 
Allah. <laughs>